You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, our scripture reading is from the Old Testament, from the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 4, I'm going to read from verse 18 through verse 27, and if you're using the church Bible, the passage is on page 638, 638, Proverbs chapter 4, and beginning to read at verse 18. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. My son, pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to a man's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Put away perversity from your mouth. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Make level paths for your feet, and take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. Well, a happy new year. Some of you were probably brought up under the old regime. I remember on New Year's Eve as a youngster, it was the occasion in which I was sent to make annual confession. And my brother and I were sent away out of the living room to find some quiet place in the house, and there we were to spend half an hour making our New Year resolutions. Uh, For some strange reason, there were always to be ten of them. I think that was somehow or another associated with something or another in the Old Testament Scriptures in the Ten Commandments. And I must confess, I always found it difficult to come up with ten It wasn't, indeed, it really wasn't that I was uh, an unusually uh, biddable child, I think, uh, in fact, uh, especially when Dorothy tells me what my mother said to her about me before we were married and afterwards, I probably was uh, something of a pain in the neck. Uh, But I found it difficult uh, for actually a very obvious reason. I really had no incentive to change. And so, although I did my best, I wrote down a few things, uh, tried to be tidier. That would still be a resolution on New Year's Eve for me. Uh, Try to help more old ladies across the street. Uh, Once I got to about seven, I was really struggling with things. But I I had no heart for it, no incentive for it. And it's been interesting to me ever since childhood that when we read 
actually many passages in the Scriptures, uh, we find something of the same response. Passage like this that is so full, apparently, of the things you're supposed to do. There are about a dozen of them, incidentally. And it's so easy, and, and it's a trap I think many people fall into. Indeed, even as Christians, we fall into it. We read passages like this telling us to do this, telling us not to do that, make the resolutions, and we have no heart. Uh, it, it, the words fall on unfertile soil because we have no motivation and we have no sense of provision to produce the kind of transformation that the Scriptures have in view. Actually, sadly, I think we can read the whole book of Proverbs like that. It's like a thousand things you need to learn and do properly if you're going to survive in an ungodly world. And yet, actually, that's not really how the book of Proverbs works especially these opening seven chapters. If you've ever read them at a sitting, you probably notice that they divide into, I think, ten sections, each of which is essentially a dad's talk to his son. Of course, you could flip it and say, with a few changes, a mum could give exactly the same talk to her daughter's but there are, there are these ten talks. It's like, you know, uh, ten ways to successful godly living. And then uh, there's a kind of interlude when wisdom speaks how to live wisely in the world, and then all the little proverbs that we love to read and try and puzzle out what do they mean, how do they belong together. But this is really the Old Testament's book on child-rearing. More than that, it actually gives to the parents, in this instance gives to the father, exactly the things that he needs to be able to say to his son. And it's very interesting that when the New Testament authors read the book of Proverbs, they saw there was another dimension to it. It wasn't just that the, the father who was living his life in covenant with God was giving instructions to his son as to how the covenant life works. It was that what the father was saying, he was really saying because God Himself had taught him these things in His Word. Remember how in Hebrews chapter 12, in the, in the section on struggling and affliction in the Christian life, the author of Hebrews quotes Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, and he introduces the words with a, a most striking introduction. He says, have you forgotten how in these words God is addressing you? Now, why is that so unusual? It's unusual because usually when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it says things like, it is written, or God has, past tense, said. But when it cites these words in Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, which are part of this whole section, it says, listen to these words, because in these words, today, 
it's not just the Father in the book of Proverbs, it is God Himself who here and now is addressing you as sons. And this, of course, is how the gospel works. This is why the book of Proverbs is, is not a book of moralisms and telling us to pull up our bootstraps, but a gospel message, because it's rooted in gospel provisions. It's rooted in gospel motivations, and it produces gospel transformations. And I want us to see that in two ways in these verses today. First of all, in the way in which these words provide us with gracious motivation, gospel motivation, or to use the Old Testament word, covenant motivation, in which God comes to us and says, here is what I have done for you. And so, here it is, here it is, I'm going to tell you what it's like to trust in me. And then when he says, once we have got that clear, once we have got first principles in their right place, then I'm going to provide you with motivation, and I'm going to describe for you how grace produces transformation. So, grace provides us with motivation, and grace produces transformation. Look at the description of how God's grace works that He gives us in verse 18 and 19. Uh, those of you who know the Psalms will immediately think of the first Psalm, the first beatitude in the Psalm. Blessed is the man who lives in fellowship with God. And the way he puts it is this, the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. And that brightness of the hope of God's grace, the blessings of God's grace, shines even more brightly because we see it in the light of its opposite. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. When they stumble, they don't even know what it is that has made them stumble. I don't know what percentage in the congregation here comes from the West Coast or are non-Dundonians. My guess is actually perhaps most of us here are non-Dundonians. And do you remember, do you, if you're not a Dundonian, what you used to think about Dundee? You're brought up like me in Glasgow. Can any good thing come out of Dundee? And then you wake up in the morning in Dundee and you see something that you never see in Glasgow or rarely see in Glasgow living on the East Coast with the water stretching out, and the fabulous beauty of the sunrise, the color in the sky, the, the glory that seems to, seems to arise out of the sea, and then uh, as the sun rises, uh, our, whole, our whole environment is bathed in light, and it happens again and again and again and again. Rarely happens in Glasgow. You can't see that far. You're not high enough up. And this, in a way, is such a, a gripping picture of the Christian life. You know, it's people who, live, people who live outside of the Christian life, people who live in this darkness that he describes, 
they look at the Christian life and they say, can any good come out of being a Christian? It's like, can any good come out of Dundee? Or can any good come out of Nazareth? But then he says, when when you're brought out of that darkness in which you cannot even see what it is that makes you stumble before the presence of God and throws your life into confusion, when you are brought into just the beginnings of this light and then the full wonder of this light. You see, he's using these word pictures to to give us a sense of imagination and taste and even a kind of vision of how we think about the Christian life, that the Christian life is not a matter of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. The Christian life is the the Son of Righteousness, Jesus Christ, coming over the horizon and us beginning to sense there is new light in our lives. How many people have said to me, you know, when, when I was being drawn to Christ, I thought, what's happening to me? I met an amazing old lady in, in London once who had, who had in her day gone to Martin Lloyd-Jones when he was minister of, of, uh, of Westminster Chapel and said to, to, I don't know what's happened to me, I think I may be going mad. I'm beginning to see things I never saw, feel things, desire things I never desired. And of course, the truth of the matter was exactly what's described here in the book of Proverbs the sun was beginning to rise. And in the light of Christ, the Son and Savior, everything looked different. It's like the hymn, isn't it? When you become a Christian, something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. It's like, it's like going to live in the United States, and I think most of our American friends are away this weekend for some reason or another, and, and people say to you, well, well, what's different about living here from living in Scotland? Same language, some of the same genes. And the answer is, everything is different. Absolutely everything is just that little bit different. And so, this father who himself has been listening to the covenant Word of God and is passing on the covenant Word of God is really wanting to set his exhortations for the new life in the context of sensing the wonder of the new life. Being a Christian is is going to be a terrible burden. It's going to be a pain in the neck if what I think it is is trying to do better, feeling that God will eventually accept me if I can get to if I can get to resolution number eight and keep the first five of them. And this wise father in the book of Proverbs here is he's sitting his sons down. Do you notice that in verse four? Listen, my sons. And then is there one particular son who needs to hear this? You notice he changes to the singular in verse 20. He says, now my son, listen to what I've just been saying. Being in covenant with God, knowing the Lord, being among those he describes as the righteous, 
which doesn't mean the Pharisee. It doesn't mean the awkward and angular, but means the person who has who has found acceptance with God because of God's covenant mercy, and who lives in the abundance of that covenant mercy, sensing, sensing that this mercy of God to me is overwhelming, that His grace is actually amazing. You see, that's a problem, isn't it? When I sing about God's grace as being predictable, it will never seem amazing. It's actually as simple as that. So long as I think God's grace is what is due me, I'll never be able to sing of it as amazing. It's just a psychological impossibility. You cannot believe that God's grace is amazing until you realize that it has dawned on you in the kind of darkness that he is describing here. So, this is the foundation. And yes, it's not new. Of course, this is, for most of us, this is, uh, this is cold kale het, isn't it? You know, we've heard this thing again and again and again, but we need to hear it again and again and again because so often our problem is that we hear it with the hearing of the ear, but not with the hearing of the heart. And remember how Jesus says, take heed how ye hear. So, this is the foundation in the grace of God. And then He begins to describe the transformation that the grace of God produces and uh, you'll notice that he describes this in several different ways. First of all, in verses 20 to 22, he tells us that transformation is going to take place through the powerful influence of God's Word. Transformation takes place through the powerful influence of God's Word. So, he says, my son, pay attention to what I say listen closely to my words, don't let them out of your sight, keep them within your heart, because they are life to those who find them and health to a man's whole body. So, how does it work? Do you notice that he is not saying here, when you do what God's Word says, your life will change? That's true but it's not the truest thing. The truest thing he's saying here is, as your ear is opened to God's Word, God's Word will change you. In many ways, I think we, we could hear this every Sunday. In a sense, we do hear this every Sunday, and yet often we don't hear it. And what he is saying, is, it's, it's really exactly the same as what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He says, when you heard the Word of God, you received it not merely as the words of men, but as it really is, the Word of God which is at work in you believers. And so, this is the great thing. Do you know our, uh, our shorter catechism has a very interesting question. It asks the question, how is it that the Word of God becomes effective in our lives. 
And its answer is, I think, is quite intriguing. It says, the Word of God becomes effectual in our lives by our reading of it, but especially by the preaching of it. I, I think that's very interesting. It's actually, within the evangelical world, it's radically countercultural. I think most evangelical Christians don't believe that. I think most evangelical Christians believe that the Word of God becomes most effectual when they read it, not when it is preached to them. So, why did these wise old men in the 17th century turn that on its head and say, yes, it is effectual as we read it, but it's especially effectual when it's preached to us? Well, you, you can just uh, you can think of the situation, can't you? What do you do when you're reading it? You sit down, and your Bible isn't up here, is it? Your Bible is down here, and you're actively engaged in reading it and trying to understand it. So, you are unusually active. It actually seems that what you are doing is studying God's Word. But even architecturally, especially since there's only, as far as I can see, one person upstairs. When the Word is preached, where are you in relationship to this book? I think, as far as I can see, everyone except one person is under it. Actually, that's the traditional language, isn't it? You know, where do you go to church? Those of you who are older, I sit under David Robertson's ministry. That was a great expression, wasn't it? I sit under, and the Word is spoken to me. And what's emphasized there is, yes, we need to study on our own. We need to read the Bible on our own. We need to do the hard work on our own. But uh, what this father is emphasizing, what Paul is emphasizing in more than one place in the New Testament, that because it's the Word itself that does its work, that becomes most obvious when we are passively receiving it and then digesting it, when it's coming to us, when it's coming at us, when it's getting in around us, when it's getting underneath us. This is our experience when we listen to preaching. Otherwise, we have never heard preaching, that we hear God exploring areas of our lives that the person who is preaching could not possibly know anything about, because God's Word is living and it's coming to us. And it's just like Hebrews says, it's God addressing us as His children through His Word. And so, in essence, the Father is saying to the Son, get yourself under the Word as much as you can. I mean, interesting, isn't it? This Son would not have had a Bible of His own. This Father would not have had a Bible. But when you think about it, every single word in the Bible was written in order to be heard by someone speaking it to you, because nobody had a Bible. And this is, this is how it works, isn't it? That the Word does the work. What a relief that is to us. 
I mean, think of all that will face us throughout the year and all the calls to, to have transformed lives in order to witness to Jesus Christ. But what's the first thing? The first thing is let the Word do its own work. Let it work in you. Let Jesus' prayer be answered in your life. Father, change them through the truth. Your Word is truth. But then there's a second thing, isn't there? Uh, These famous words in verse 23. Not only are we to allow the Word to do its work, but we are to guard our hearts above all else, because uh, that's the key, he says, isn't it? Verse 23, for it is the wellspring of life. Why, Why do I still need to do that as a Christian? Now, hope, I hope we don't think that because we become Christians, we, we don't need to be on our guard. We need to guard our hearts because, uh, because they're still plagued by sin. And so, as the Word does its work, one of the things that happens, one of the things the Spirit does is He, he gets into places that we hadn't noticed, and He begins to bring all the garbage of our lives out to the surface in order that they may be confessed, in order that the power of Christ may transform us. And so, so we very much need to guard our hearts. Because, you see, if we, if, we, if we divert there, we divert everywhere. Those of you who actually you could, you could play baseball, you could play tennis, but this is especially true if you play golf your ball can end up 20 yards off the fairway, 40 yards from where you thought you were aiming. But when your club actually struck the ball, there was just a degree of difference between the true and the false. But when it gets out there, and you see in that sense, this is why we need to guard our hearts because everything comes out of our hearts. It's out of the heart that the mouth speaks, he says. That's interesting, isn't it? I thought it was out of the mouth, or maybe out of the throat, or maybe out of the diaphragm that the mouth spoke. But no, no, he says, uh, it all rushes out of the heart. Uh, I had to write to somebody uh, the other day and apologize for something I said. And I said, you know, I would say that… that what I said was an aberration. I don't usually talk that way, except that I've preached often enough that every aberration that comes from my lips is actually a revelation of what's been lying in my heart. And gospel grace both puts the Word of God into our hearts and then enables us to guard our hearts, and as we guard our hearts, something else happens, and that is that the whole of our lives begins to be consecrated to the Lord. And this is why he goes into such kind of anatomical detail in verses 25 through 27. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Make level paths for your feet and take only ways that are firm. Don't swerve to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. You see, your eyes and your feet and uh, your mouth, what's he saying? 
He's saying when God's Word begins to do its work and your heart is guarded by God's grace, then the transformation that is produced is, it affects everything. This is like the Old Testament version of Romans 12, 1 and 2, isn't it? In view of the mercies of God, says Paul, I appeal to you, present your bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. This is your, this is your reasonable service. Those who are conscious of the overwhelming character of God's grace and love to them in Jesus Christ want to give themselves without reservation because the grace that overwhelms us draws us in in the flood of its power to tell the Lord that we love Him and that we want every part of our being to serve Him and to be for His glory. So, uh, perhaps in providence of God, one of the good things for me about being sent into my room in order to make my resolutions was that having learned to do it the wrong way around, the gospel turned life on its head. And it's a lesson, dear friends, isn't it, that we need to return to again and again and again. So, what's the word? It is as we step out into the year. Uh, we are, after all, in Dundee. It was like this this morning. We see the Son of righteousness arising with healing in His wings. We open our ears to Him, and we say, Speak, Lord, because Your servant is listening. Let Your Word do its mighty work in my life. And as it does that, I'm caught up in the, in the power of the flood of His grace. And uh, I want to guard my heart, and I want to give my life more and more to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, just for a moment, imagine Joseph sitting down with uh, Jesus and these four brothers Joseph would have memorized uh, Proverbs chapter 4 because his dad would have taught him to memorize Proverbs chapter 4. And picture them there, the five of them, these five boys, Joseph's five boys. Did they have these wee faces? Remember five fries, five boys, and these wee faces? Did they have these different faces? My sons. And then imagine them turning to Jesus and saying this to Jesus, now, my son, and Jesus thinking, these exhortations are so impossible for my brothers. I see them failing day after day, and my calling is not only to fulfill them before them, but to die for their failure to fulfill them, to rise again to begin to be the sunshine in their lives, and to think that what Jesus did for His brothers or half-brothers, He's willing to do for us. This is surely the recipe for a blessed new year. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that in Your mercy and by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
you would overflow into our hearts an abundant sense of the tenderness and wonder of Your grace, that every reservation we have about giving ourselves to You without reservation may be drowned in the sea of Your grace, and we will know something of what it means to be both lost and found in wonder, love, and praise. So bless us, and we pray You'll make us a blessing to one another. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.